This is PeerPath, a podcast devoted to bringing ambitious humans together, making connections and sharing stories about one's path in life. Our mission is to inspire, to educate and empower you through open dialogue and candid conversations with extraordinary individuals. Each week, you will hear from your peers and leaders in their field. In this week's episode on PeerPath, you will hear the untold story of the British family firm that became a global brand. Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok, shares how it all started from his grandfather's shoe business in Bolton in the late 1800s, growing the business with his late brother, Jeffrey, to become a multi-billion dollar international sportswear giant since the 1980s. Joe recently published the untold story of Reebok in his book, Shoemaker. And you can go and get that book on Amazon and at jwfosterheritage.com. That's jwfosterheritage.com. You can get in touch with Joe on LinkedIn by searching his name and Twitter at Reebok Founder. I'll put all of this information in the show notes for you to check out. Before we get into this week's episode, I'm excited to share PeerPath Podcast is brought to you by the rapidly growing British luxury watch brand, William Wood Watches. William Wood Watches are a UK-based company that make luxury affordable with their original eye-catching watches designed with rich detail and an original story within every watch. Made from 100% upcycled UK fire service equipment that's been used in the last 10 years and a melted down 1920s brass firefighting helmet, there is history and heritage in every watch. Carry the spirit of a hero on your wrist. William Wood Watches has been featured in the Times Sunday magazine, Forbes, GQ and many others with five-star reviews on Trustpilot and the most welcoming customer care you will ever receive. Their Valiant collection is the most stunning watch you will find. And to get one of these stunning watches, head over to williamwoodwatches.com and use code PEERPATH5 to get 5% off everything in the online store. So go and get something special and go to williamwoodwatches.com and use code PEERPATH5 at checkout to get 5% off your total order. A percentage of your purchase goes towards helping the firefighters charity that supports operational men and women in the fire service and their families in the UK and across the world. So go and get a piece of firefighting history, stand out from the crowd and own a simply stunning watch for yourself or as an amazing gift for someone you admire. Check out the watches at williamwoodwatches.com. Use code PEERPATH5 at checkout and get 5% off of everything today. Now let's get into this week's episode. I hope you get a lot of value and I can't wait for you to listen. So let's get into it. And remember, Peer Path Podcast is best listened to on the move as motion creates emotion. Hey Joe, thanks so much for joining us today. Could not be more excited to get into our chat. For our listeners this week, we have Joe Foster joining us. Joe and his brother Jeff started a shoe company out of their family business called Mercury back in the 1950s that broke the mold and the culture for Know Your Place at the time and went on to become Reebok. That has become a global phenomenon of over 50 years with multi-billion dollar revenues, who many of you would be aware of, if not like me, passionate and loyal fans of their shoes and training gear. But if you haven't read the book, there is a lot more to the tale than meets the eye. So let's get straight into it. 
for those who don't know you, um, please tell us who you are, Joe, uh, your age, and then share the vision you have for your life with us. Well, hello, Jesse. Thanks for the invitation. Who am I? Um, I'm a co-founder with my brother of the company we know as Reebok. Uh, we did start up as Mercury, but uh, that's all part of the story. And right now I'm well retired, over 30 years. And at the moment, um, I'm 85 years now, which makes me rather ancient, I suppose, to most people. But uh, uh, it does make the story sound pretty good because it's, uh, it's amazing what happened during the 31 years that I was with Reebok. Fantastic. Yeah, and I, and I can't wait to get into that. So, Joe, some, starting something generally comes from pain, obligation or inspiration. Which one was it for you when starting Reebok? <laughs> I think there was a bit of all, of everything there because uh, there was a lot of pain, <laughs> um, but there was a lot of inspiration and, and there was a need. Uh, the need came in, and I, I don't know where you want me to start with this, but uh, I guess really a bit of history is not a bad idea. Um, we've got to go back, really. The Foster family have been traditionally in sports football now for 125 years, which is a long, long time. But let's go back to 1895, and that's when my grandfather made himself a pair of running shoes. And in those days, running shoes with spikes in the bottom, unheard of. Totally unheard of. Um, he was a member of the, uh, the local Harriers in Bolton. And he, he enjoyed his running, but he wasn't one of the best. He was sort of midfield when it came to uh, finishing races. However, his, uh, his little invention or development, something he'd picked up from his grandfather, by the way, uh, they helped him to become second, uh, most improbable position in, in a race for Joe. And of course, this, this brought to the attention of his, uh, uh, his teammates. They, they sort of looked at this and said, well, what's going on? So they all wanted a pair of shoes. So that's how he started his business of J.W. Foster. Um, and his business was fantastic during the first decade of the 20th century. In 1904, he, in his shoes, Altrub, won, uh, broke three world records. And during that decade, he had uh, Olympic gold medalists win races, of course, and, uh, but of course the second decade, we, we had World War I, and that too took away his business, and he was repairing uh, army boots at that point. However, his Belle Epoque, uh, for, for my grandfather, then his company was J.W. Foster and Sons, because he had two sons, was the 1920s. In the 1920s, he was supplying the majority of Olympic runners and all the teams with, with footwear, and he had lots and lots of gold medalists. And for people who can remember the film Chariots of Fire, Chariots of Fire was based upon the feats of uh, Harold Abraham, Eric Liddell, and Lord Burley. All three of them had won gold medals during the 1920s, and they're now immortalized in that film. Well, my grandfather made their shoes, but that's what made him so unique, because in those days he knew he knew how to influence his fellow runners, and he influenced them by giving shoes to leading athletes. Um, that, and that was something that when we, Jeff and I looked back, we thought, that's fantastic. When you're young, you don't even realize these things, but uh, 
And uh, my grandfather died in 1933, and I wasn't born until 1935. As we said, I'm 85 now, so but I was born on his birthday, the 18th of May, which was a bit of a coincidence. <laughs> it's the same day, right? <laughs> the same day, yes. And uh, of course, my grandmother at that point couldn't believe it, so you know she insisted I'm called Joe. So two Joe Fosters, my grandfather and I myself. And, and again, I was only uh, three, I think it's three, when World War Two came about. And, and I was 10 by the time it had finished. And that was in 1945. And uh, school took over. Jeff was the first one to join the company. He joined in 1948, Jerry with Foster and Sons. I didn't join until later because I went to college and I joined in 1952. However, in 1953, National Service was still around and both Jeff and I had to spend two, two years doing National Service between 1953 and 1955, which you, you learn an awful lot in that time. You're away from home. Uh, mother's not making dinner anymore. Uh, there's nobody looking after you. You're washing, things like that. You, you learn to look after yourself. And we came back in 1955. Mm. came back to the Foster Company, which was being run by my father and uncle. Trouble is, they didn't speak to each other. They, they, they preferred to have a fight than, than speak. And it was quite a, an atmosphere that, uh, that we came back to. But we also came back to a company that was failing. It hadn't moved on. And it was still making the same shoes we were making in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And here we are now, um, sort of, the second half of, 90, of the 50s, and they're still trying to make the same shoes. Jeff had been in Germany, and when Jeff was in Germany, he'd seen Adidas, he'd seen Puma, and seen how they were doing, making a difference, they were changing the world quite a bit in athlete, for athletics. We tried for three years to get father and uncle to understand they needed to change, they needed to move on, move forward. And all my father could say is, look, when I'm gone, this business is yours. You can do what you like with it. And of course, it was like, well, father, you know, that we, we don't want to see you dead. You know, we don't want you to see you away. What, you know, what is for certain, this company will be dead before you are because it, it's going nowhere. It needs to change. However, no matter what we said, um, we couldn't make any, any changes. So we, we had only one option. And this is the sort of the, the hopeful part of it is that we had to leave. And we did leave the company, but we were young. I was 23, Jeff was 25. But, you know, we'd just done two years of national service. What is it to lose? Nothing. Mm -hmm. We just make that break. So uh, we left and we set up our company six miles down the road in the next town. And we called it Mercury, Mercury Sports Footwear. And that was the beginning. It eventually became Reebok, but if you want me to tell you that story, I can do Fantastic. No, thanks for sharing that. And there's, there's a few things, um, I think definitely, we'll definitely move on to that side, but there's a few things I wanted to pick out from that initial journey. As, as you said, you know, it started from a bit of a mix of obligation, pain and inspiration. And having, um, you know, having read the book front to back, it seems like, from the start of your journey you were quite heavily influenced by this desire to almost not it seems like to almost prove your family wrong that you're capable as they seem to be putting up a lot of challenges in your way but what seemed to shine through was your optimism 
um how how did you cope with the knockbacks and how did you um sort of internalize the the challenges with you know going on the path that you want to go down and then not having any support from you know from your family where you could see them going down a path that wasn't going to end well well when when you talk to your parents and you're trying to teach them something they look at you and say you know just a minute you you're only young sir what do you know about life and if we go back down back to the 50s it was more of that you know you should know your place you know you don't speak like that to your elders um we know the company's been going now for 15 nearly 60 years it's this is the best in the world as far as they were concerned but of course they, they didn't see the world they were so inward looking so and i think the two years of national service plus the fact we both well, Japan and myself have been part of the scouting uh, organization for many years, and that that gives you a lot of independence as well. Mm. So we we were quite grown up about it. We we didn't have any problems. Look, we've been away for two years. We've come back. We we tried, but I'm sorry, we are going. And when you when you you're fairly indestructible at that age. You know, <laughs> nothing nothing can destroy your ambition and your thinking. And Providing you don't think too far in front, because right now, or even many years into the company, you, you try and look back and you think, uh, even now I think, could I do that now? How did I manage? How did I manage to do that? Why? Why did I do that? You know, jumping on airplanes. We didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have computers. But look at this now. And okay, if I wanted to meet somebody, I, I would have to travel. If I wanted to talk to somebody, yes. They, they, we did have landline phones, but in those days, anything, well, anything beyond a few miles, you more or less had to book a call and call an operator and say, I want to speak to somebody and they would connect you. So that's, that wasn't there. You know, the connectivity wasn't there. So you, what you had to do, of course, is believe in yourself and just keep going. And uh, we, we had lots, lots and lots of problems. And I think any, any entrepreneur, um, coming out with a product today. We'll probably have similar problems, but don't don't try and think them through. If you do try and think them through, if you're probably if you're that clever to be able to think them through, you won't do it. <laughs> because the, the wall is too is too big. Uh, so, so you know the fact that we didn't overthink the problem. We just knew this company was failing. We had the uh, uh, well we had what grandfather had done, and you know that, that was such an inspiration that uh, we thought, well, if he could do it way back then, back in 1895, he could start his business. We could do it now. In, uh, 1958, surely by now, it's uh, you know we've got so many things in our favour. Um, and if you talk talk about things right now in 2020, you know life has changed totally. But uh, the uh, the ideas. That grandfather had for influencing athletes mm. are the same today. That's not changed. What has changed is the market. Yeah, and and let's th- let's stay with that point for sure. That really stuck out to me. I mean, um, you know, you're saying try not to think or look too far forward, but it seems like you had a very strong vision that was um, inspired by your granddad, and your um, and and your granddad seemed to have 
you know, be way ahead of his time in terms of the paying endorsers to wear um, to wear the shoes and the footwear and also to have those uh, those influences, so to speak, that, that are now so prominent today and is now become more of a, a thing, so to speak. Um, so could you speak a bit more about because I know you also did some really exciting things in terms of marketing your business and and you did some different ways to do it because you had to stand out because you're a small company and you were growing um, so maybe could you talk a bit about your philosophy or marketing at the time and and maybe that ties back into you you just you didn't think too much you just thought that looks like a good idea you know they're winning medals let's let's get product into their hands so how did you how did you think about that <clears throat> well I mean by the time we were sort of with Reebok Adidas just about taking the football market football boots Fosters have been into football boots, and in fact, there's an article on the BBC have produced an article about 1945 when uh, um, Moscow Dynamo, I think it's called Moscow Dynamo, Dynamo Moscow, they they visited in 1945, first overseas team to visit the UK to play football, and they actually went to Fosters and had boots made, which is oh, wow. incredible. That today, today the BBC are, are recording this, but. As, as far as Jeff and I were concerned, it was a question of, like, okay, so football is out. We, we did try a bit in football, but uh, that was a, a difficult one at the time. And athletics is something we knew about. We've been, the, the foster company was in athletics, so we knew athletics. Uh, and, and we knew cycling, and we started off with cycling shoes first and then moved into athletics. Um, but it was, how do you get your product in? Because I, I used to, Jeff, Jeff looked after the production. He, he he was in the factory, he made the shoes, he, he was production. I had all the rest to do. I was doing the marketing, the selling and whatever. So I'd go around to retailers and um, go in, put the bag on the counter and say, I'm from Reebok. And the guy would say, Reebok, who's that? Uh, well, I'd explain who we were. And then they say, well, I've got Adidas and I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? Um, and that sort of that question resonated quite deeply by saying, well, why do they need Reebok? They don't. I have to make them need Reebok. You know, we have to sell the brand. That's the only way that people will feel there's a need. <clears throat> and uh, so I did have a reasonable amount of success selling into the into the trade, sports shops. And th those days, there'd be two or three sports shops in, in every town. Now, there's probably one big one or two big ones, and they're <laughs> they're ubiquitous. They they they're throughout the country. These were ex-footballers or ex-athletes, people who mainly footballers who, who opened the sports shop and just sell everything. Um, so, whilst I say I had some a reasonable amount of success, uh, and that was especially because we we also made rugby boots. But we made rugby boots for, for rugby league, and rugby league is, was a north of, north of England uh, uh, game, and so I managed to get them in my boots into uh, rugby league teams. But when it came to athletes, it was, uh, well, we used to go around to athletics meetings, selling shoes at meetings. And uh, and it struck me that these are my customers. And that if I can't go through the retail to these customers, why don't I try and go direct to these customers? So uh, it's all happened that the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, produce a handbook. And that handbook got every club in the country that was affiliated to the three A's, and you had to be if you were to put events on. <clears throat> in that handbook, there was the name of the secretary and his address. And so, well, it didn't take much thinking about that. 
out went 500 letters with an offer and uh, we offered 15% discount, which could go to club funds. Or <clears throat> if somebody in the club would like to be the agent, he would get a discount. Mm. And yes, overnight almost, we got hundreds of agents. They, they were all happy to do that. It gave us credibility because we had our shoes on so many athletes. These weren't the top athletes. These weren't the ones who were winning gold medals at that time. These were the ones, the foot soldiers, as it were, the ones who made up the numbers. But they were the numbers, and they, they were buying our shoes, which was fantastic. <clears throat> and what it did do, it, it, uh, I started getting phone calls then from the retail trade. And they were saying, um, I'm, I'm getting some inquiries for your shoes. Because obviously a lot of athletes, although they would in those days be quite happy to buy mail order, it wasn't as easy because sizes and returns, that, that, that wasn't something that people knew that much about. And uh, so they'd go into the shops and say, you know, no, Reebok, well, you know, my buddies are all buying Reebok running shoes. Uh, and, and so this made the, the, the retailers call me and they'd call me and say, look, um, you know, I'm being asked for, for your shoes and uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to sell them, but you're selling direct. And if you stop selling direct, you know, I'll stop your shoes. And, and I said, well, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm very happy to, to sell the shoes to you. And you can buy them from me at a wholesale price. Uh, I am selling to clubs and I am selling to athletes and they only get a small, they don't really get a discount. Somebody gets a 15% for selling them. And that's all. But I said, if you want, I will supply you at wholesale, but I'm not going to stop selling direct. Mm. And I, I think probably nine out of 10 accepted that fact <laughs> because that's what made people go into their shop, the fact that we were supplying those shoes. Uh, so that started the volumes coming in. But I, I knew when we, when we were talking about the early 60s, I knew that this business was a nice business, but it was a small business, nothing like football. We needed, we needed to get more volume. And, uh, and I know that in America, uh, Foster did actually sold to America. In fact, Foster sold through uh, two guys, Bob G and Jack and, and uh, Frank Ryan. And they were, they were both coaches, head coaches at Yale University. So Foster's shoes were pretty well spread out in America through the college system. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a big volume because in those days, running, running really was performance. It, it, it hadn't come across onto the, onto the roads or become on street. The thing that was leading street was Adidas with their uh, replica shirts. You could see lots of replica shirts in the, in the 60s. That's, that sort of spread their business, put their business on the street. But I wanted to get into America and it was 1968 before I got the opportunity to go to America for the first time. And that's when the government had decided that uh, they would like to encourage the sports trade to export. And uh, they decided and they made an offer of a, a stand, that's a stand at the NSGA, which was the National Sporting Goods Show in America, in Chicago, big, biggest show in the world, biggest sports show in the world. Um, they, would, they would pay for the stand, they would pay for our return offer, and uh, they'd also pay 50% of the hotel bill. So it was really a no-brainer. It was like, well, why not <clears throat> take the opportunity? But, and, and although 
well, the one thing I learned about in 1968 <clears throat> is that when when the uh, the guys would come to my stand and say, well, "I like your shoes, this is great," where'd we get them? And I would say, "Well, from England." And of course, they'd come back to me. They went, "New England?" And, no, 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 England across the water. Oh, <clears throat> and that was like a big barrier. They they couldn't think about importing, and and why should they? They could get plenty of product. The, on, on the whole market, no problem. Mm. Uh, so I tried numerous times to get a distributor, lots and lots. And some, some tried hard. Some soon found out that it was a hard job and too hard a job uh, and gave up. It was 1979 before I eventually got Paul Fireman, who was uh, in Boston. We, we met at the 1979 NSGA show in Chicago. And that's in February, and it's very cold in February in Chicago, I can tell you, it really is. But <clears throat> we'd persist, persisted and kept going, um, 979. And uh, what Paul said is, look, we, we, need, we need a hook, we need a key. And I, and I knew we needed a hook, we needed a key. And this had come about because running become something big in America. Not only had the colleges and universities got coaches and teams and whatever, it became road shoot, became road running, became something really big. Their training, races, 10Ks, half marathons, marathons, became something massive. And uh, this has been uh, influenced by Runner's World magazine. Mm -hmm. Runner's World magazine was the Bible in those days. It was a fantastic uh, uh Magazine, oh, fantastic vehicle really to sell your product through. But I still have the same problem. I, I advertise in a magazine, but we were across the water in the UK, and although I sold a few, it, uh, it, it didn't, it couldn't substitute for the fact that you needed to be there on the market. But Runners World magazine was out, and uh, I met the guy who owned it, Bob Anderson, and he started rating shoes. He had one, one. Once a year, I think it was the August issue, he put the ratings for shoes in. And he started rating them one, two, three, four, five, and whoever got the number one rating could never produce enough shoes. It was impossible because everybody who read the magazine, and that was most people who were running, read that magazine. So everybody wanted that shoe. And so whether it was Nike or New Balance or Etonic, whoever at that time, maybe even Brooks, if they got a number one, they could never produce enough shoes to satisfy the demand. And by the time they could, a magazine had come out with a new number one. And that was, that. the, the retail trade hated that because uh, they could never get the shoes that were in demand. And when they did, and when it changed, they were left with shoes because everybody wanted the new one. So uh, they persuaded uh, Bob Anderson to change and he did. He changed to a, a star rating. And changing to a star rating gave us an opportunity because uh, he started, the best was be five stars and went down. And I realized that if we could get a five-star shoe, we, we then had a key. That would be the hook that we needed. Mm. And we made a shoe for the Empire, uh, I guess you can say Empire Games, Commonwealth Games, <laughs> the Commonwealth Games in uh, Edmonton. And we'd done very well with that. Uh, We've got a few gold medals, a few of our top athletes who are now wearing our shoes, David Jenkins, Jeff Capes, and people like that. We, we go into our shoes. Uh, so we came back with some gold medals. 
And I took that shoot at the 1979 NSGA show, and Paul Feynman saw it, Kmart, which is a big wholesale, big uh, uh, big retail group in America. They, they saw it as well, and they knew running was coming up and growing. And Kmart wanted to award 25,000 per shoot. Well, 25,000 per Yes, uh, that would be six months production for our small factory in uh, in the UK. <clears throat> uh, but again, it's not as though we didn't know. We knew that if we got a shoe, uh, which was a five-star rating, we, and, and we got into America, we would need to increase volume. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a good friend at Barter, and Barter said they would help with volume, they, they could do that. <clears throat> But also Kmart wanted it at a better price. So the price is just too high. And again, we knew the fact that everybody's going far to the Far East. Lots of people going to South Korea. Yep, that is where the, uh, the production is coming from. And South Korea, you would get it at uh, half, well, less than half the price that, uh, that we could make it. So, you know, we're, we're poised on the fact that we needed America. But if we did, we'd need better volumes and we need better prices. So we've got three things going all at the same time. But uh, and Paul Feynman said, well, if you do get a five-star shoe, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to be your distributor. We had to wait, of course, about five months before the uh, uh, Ronda's World shoe ratings came out. And I, I called Paul uh, about midday, which is about seven o'clock in the morning for him, uh, and said, Paul, come get up to the kiosk and pick up one of those uh, uh, Runners World magazines, it should be out now. An hour later, he came back. He got the magazine. He said, Joe, he said, Aztec, which was our special shoe, it's got five stars. Oh, brilliant, fantastic. That was it. We'd got the hook. He said, but also, your other two shoes got five stars uh, because we put a spike track shoe in and we put a racing shoe in. Um, so we got three five-star shoes. So for me, that was... That was the that was the key to the door, and the door there was Paul Fireman. And you you spent um, in for those. I mean, you have to buy the book for everyone listening. But um, obviously, Joe's telling you some key parts of the story here. But the I know I know you went through a lot of pain in in finding Paul, and when when you hit that moment, it's one of it. You know, you you spent was it four years working with um, was it Shu Lang and and some other distributors, and it seemed just like everything came together at the right time. Um, you had you had the volume, uh, you had the ratings, and you had the prices, and you had the, the factory set up to go. Um, how how has, you know, being, getting, I guess, being, I say being in the right place at the right time, but I feel like you've created your own luck, and I feel like you've been, you worked so hard to get to these points where everything just aligned, the universe came together. Um, how yeah? How do you think that's helped you, and how do you think those moments came together? Do you think it was just through pushing, just n- never giving up? Well, I, I think that um, any entrepreneur really needs a lot of luck, and uh, sometimes you don't re- recognise it as luck. But the fact that running in America just became a boom business—you know—it went from nothing to an incredible amount. That that was being uh, us being there. We were unique. The uh, you know people like Clarks make shoes, and Clarks tried to make an athletic shoe. They failed. They failed because they perceived as as a street shoe, as children's shoes. Yeah. You know, so our perception, we were athletics. We were the right people. Then we arrived at the right time. 
And yes, you know, you've got to keep pushing at it. You've got to keep working at it. Had running not come along, we'd have, we were still going to go to America because the, that running market, the athletics market in the universities and colleges was really big. Mm-hmm. But the stroke of luck was that we were there pushing up that market, trying to get in when the running market started to boom. So that really took us in, into America. And I think you have to know what you want. You've got to know that you, you're looking for a market, you're looking to improve your business. And I was looking to America because that, that for me was the, the biggest influence for the rest of the world. Whatever goes on in America soon catches on wherever, particularly in Japan. Japan was the first one to take anything that is America. And then, then it works its way through to Germany and Europe. Um, we, you know, we'd looked at Europe uh, to, to increase uh, our volumes, but Europe is just all different languages and different cultures, so many in such a small area. Whereas America, you know, we, we had 350 million people there. And roughly speaking, they spoke the same language. Mm-hmm. You know, they could all speak English. But, uh, so for, for me, that was really something that uh, we considered as the best thing to do, plus the fact that when we did get to America and uh, we, we had our, what we call now is vector, which is a side striping. I, the, one of the things, only four years into business, you know, we had to change our name because Mercury was pre-registered, so we ended up with, with Reebok, and that's a story in itself. But only four years in the business, I get a letter from uh, Adidas. Uh, they considered our two stripes, we had two stripes and a T-bar. They considered that infringed uh, three stripes. And, uh, you know, if we didn't change, they would sue us. <laughs> well, we were delighted. <laughs> <laughs> the best news ever. Wow. <laughs> Adidas, right. Delighted to be sued, yeah. We got them. We got them scared. <laughs> that was wonderful. That was, that was a great moment. And uh, in fact, it was quite interesting changing to the uh, arrow, which became the uh, uh, the vector. So we, we had to do that, and that became um, that became very recon- a recognisable silhouette for the brand. Really. Did. And, and another thing that happened, um, being a, an enthusiast for Reebok. There's a window on the side of the shoe in which the, the Reebok uh, uh, label is sort of sewn in behind it. And that came about because at the time we were doing quite nicely. And uh, I bought, well, we both, we both had Saab cars. And the Saab Turbo was quite a car in those days. And so uh, I, I was very, uh, very happy and sort of well known with, with the Saab people and knew, knew the owner of the Manchester garage very well. And he said to me, Joe, he said, uh, can you make a pair of shoes for Sebco? Uh, well, we all know who Sebco is. He was in those days probably our leading athlete with uh, world records. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, one problem. I said, he is, uh, he is under contract to Nike. And uh, <laughs> he certainly can't sort of wear anything so the guy said, well, why can you make it? Can you put Saab on the side? And he went into his office and brought these labels out that they normally sew onto jackets and stuff. Uh, and he gave it to me. He said, can you put these on them? So it says Saab. And I said, well, <clears throat> leave it with me. I'll see what I can do. So I went back and he distracted me. These labels, the only way I could 
really put them on was to put them underneath, cut, cut a window in, into the side uh, stripes for, of, a, of, a, of the Reebok shoe and put Saab in, uh, which I did. And uh, I have a photograph of me handing these to uh, Seb Cole. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if Seb ever wore them or not. Maybe, maybe he may have worn them for slippers or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm handing these. So I've got the photograph of me with Seb Cole that handed him these with this Saab in the uh, inside of the shoe. But it it, it, it tried to me. I thought, this, this looks pretty good, actually, the way it's done. So on my way back, I'm on the phone to uh, uh, our label manufacturer because we had our tongue label. And this was a woven label. And I was on the phone to him. And he came the next day and we discussed how we could do a Reebok in, in there to put it into the side of the shoe. And that's how that one came about. That became a feature that all because Saab wanted me to make a pair of shoes for Sepco. So, I mean, those sort of coincidences are incredible. But in, in saying this, we had the Reebok and we had the, uh, the Vector. Well, I think we had, the, we had actually the Starcrest at, at the time. And Paul... Paul Feynman said, that looks a bit like the Union Jack. I said, well, yes, it's very quite similar. He said, well, why don't we use the Union Jack instead of that, instead of the Starcrest? And I said, mm, Paul, yes. He said, yeah. I said, but, I said, why? He said, well, it's going to cost us millions to get everybody to recognize your Starcrest. He said, but everybody in the States knows the Union Jack. Oh, fantastic. You know, it hadn't occurred to me that... Yeah, everybody knows the Union Jack. And it became a tremendous success. Didn't do us any favours over in the UK <laughs> because we had lots of complaints from unions and whatever that the shoes were being made in Korea and they have Union Jack. But we used to come up with all sorts of excuses. Well, um, British Airways fly Boeings, <laughs> the American Airlines, and, and they've got a Union Jack on the back. But uh, we got through that. But that again is... It, it's incredible because the shoes had a, each shoe had a Union Jack, and then we started putting them in a Union Jack box. So the lid for the box was just a Union Jack. And in those early days in America, we didn't have any point of sale stuff that would go into the shop window to advertise Reebok. So the retailers, over there, they started to take the shoes out of the box and stack the boxes up in a pyramid with the Union Jack in the window and put the shoes on on top of this pyramid. Oh. And it was fantastic. It, it, that caught on as well as the shoes did. And so many of these retailers were just putting this pile of Reebok in there with the uh, with the Union Jack. So the Union Jack does a world of good. In fact, we were selling, and we I think we used this at one point, we were selling about 5 million pairs of shoes a month at one point. 5 million in, a month. In the 80s, yeah. And there's three Union Jacks, one on each shoe and one on the box. So we had 15 million Union Jacks going around the world at one point. And that was, we used to say that, you know, the sun never sets on Reebok Union Jack. And, and there I was running. But we really, the success came in America. We'll be doing very nicely with running, very nicely, growing very nicely, great. But there was a, a tech rep. Uh, he used to go into the stores and just explain how the shoe was made and good things about the shoes. And he was in California, Los Angeles, and he's called Arnold Martinez. And Arnold, his wife, his wife Frankie, and her friends, they were going to these uh, aerobic classes. And it was only a small thing that was going on there. But, uh, and, and he said, 
he seemed to be enjoying this. I said, well, we're just exercising to music. It's great. It's great fun. So Arnold thought, I'd better have a look at this one. There's something going on. So we went down there, and he saw the instructor was wearing a pair of running shoes. Half the class were also probably wearing running shoes. The other half had no shoes at all. So in, in a wonderful uh, sort of inspired thought, he had, why don't, uh, why don't we make them a nice, soft, glove-like shoe specifically for aerobics? He came back to Paul Feynman, and Paul Feynman said, no, look, we're doing very nice with running. Why do we want to make shoes for some, you know, a few girls dancing around the, back in Los Angeles? Um, but Arnold wasn't put off. Arnold went round his back, in fact, and had a word with the production people who made him 200 pairs. And he gave out the 200 pairs, mainly to instructors down there. And that was the beginning of something absolutely special. The reason it was special is that over in America, people knew Nike, they knew Adidas, they knew other uh, sports football companies, but they were all male, sweaty. All of a sudden, this new brand were being known in running, but not in general. People didn't know Reebok at those times. Uh, so Reebok became this wonderful new uh, company producing specifically this shoe for women to exercise in. And so we weren't tainted with anything in those days like baseball, basketball, or whatever. This was, and this being down there in, in Los Angeles, soon it was in Hollywood. We had Jane Fonda doing her, her videos uh, in Reeboks, and it just went. Sybil Shepherd, she wore them to pick up an Emmy Award, and all of a sudden it became not just street, but it became worn by A-listers. Everybody, whether Michael Jackson, everybody got into those shoes, and so that really, really blew up the company. Fantastic. From, from a $9 million company, I think it went to about 30 million, then 90 million, then 300 million, and 900 million, all in successive years, which was absolutely incredible. So, so the brand, at that point, the brand was just pulling the company along. You, know, you didn't have to sell anything. I, I'd, I'd pulled back from that, and I was, uh, I was looking after every other con country in the world, America. Because I had a deal with Paul, you look after America, because what happens in America, we can we, it influences the rest of the world, makes my job dead easy. I can sell it anywhere. In fact, it did. people were just coming to me, can we can we buy a rebook? And then so putting on distribution around around the globe was quite easy. But that all came about with the aerobics phenomena. I, we have problems with it. Yes, they made it out of glove leather, which they should never have done. <laughs> the girls in uh, in California there, okay, they wore them half a dozen times and they they, they broke away, but they were so comfortable that uh, they just went out and bought another pair of shoes. In the rest of the world, they were much more price conscious than that. But it took about three months to get uh, to get the tanners to, to make better leather, soft leather, leather that was like glove fitting, but uh, but it was, well, it was thicker. It was because glove leather is just one millimeter thick. One millimeter is a very thin piece of leather, and it just turns like paper. Uh, so uh, they got that right, and of course, there's no what well, we we know. It, it had gone to Hollywood a lot, 
we we put on an event. In fact, it was a guy called Wendell Niles, who was a real empresario down there in uh, in L.A. Knew every A-lister you want. Uh, incredible. And he used to bring them all to Monte Carlo for the Pro Celebrity Tennis Tournament, which was uh, in aid of Princess Grace Memorial. Um, and I was then at a point with all these A-listers, meeting everybody, people coming up to us saying, hi, Joey. It's, um, you know, at that point, it was like, how did we get here? What happened? You know, we were making shoes. Now we're, you know, now we're putting on events with stars. And, uh, and it was incredible. And the company was just expanding like that. And it was 1989. At that time, the company was about $3.5, $3.8 billion in, in, in its revenues. And I decided that, uh, not that I had enough, it's just that I was just jumping on the plane probably once, maybe twice a month, flying out around the world, uh, being picked up in limousines, going to the best hotels, having meals and just talking to lots of people. But the challenge had gone. You know, mm. that, and, I mean, sometimes it's uh, soul-destroying, sometimes it's very... Sending some of the things that happen as you go through life, um, but I think the challenge had gone for me. I think that was it, and I just didn't want to be sitting on an airplane, just becoming an ambassador, waving a flag. Mm. So uh, by 1989, I decided I had had enough, and it was time for me to go. So I, I left the company. Uh, well, yeah, you don't leave the company. I, I'm saying it's a bit like the Eagles with uh, Hotel California. Yeah, you, know, you can check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> check out, but never leave. And it, um, it, I wanted to, as as we've got to a nice part in your story, um, but I wanted to just talk a bit about um, sacrifice, as it seems you it comes across that you you sacrificed a lot, um, if not everything. Um, as I think there's you, you mentioned in the book as well. You say, you know, you had Reebok and then you had family. And your family ended up coming second to the to the growth of, of Reebok and the business. Um, through through all of the sacrifice, and there's there's stories in the book that I'm sure and lessons that people will will read if they um, I highly recommend they pick it up. But what would you draw out in terms of young entrepreneurs, or not even young, just entrepreneurs, people building businesses at any age uh, or getting into something new where they're so obsessed with it and they drive they want to drive it forward. How, you know, what would you say to them about sacrifice? Well, I mean, at the time, you don't realize that there's a sacrifice here. Um, I think I think you have to be young, by the way, to be an entrepreneur. I think you can go into other things when you're older, but you usually go in there with lots of money or lots of uh, help and everything's around you. You've had the experiences. So I think you are young if you're going to be an entrepreneur uh, because you put everything into it. And... Uh, you don't realize how much you're putting into it at times. Um, I mean, I know what, uh, you know, it, it was such a struggle at times. My wife used to say, why don't you get a proper job? <laughs> <laughs> okay, what is a proper job? Uh, yeah. you know, this is my life. And, and, and on the other side of it, the, uh, the family does benefit. My, the problem with my wife is she didn't like traveling. And there were many, many, many opportunities when she could have come with me. And I, right now, I, 
if anybody wants me to go somewhere, it's two tickets. I'm remarried and Julie and I go everywhere together because I used to do some wonderful things. Uh, You've probably read, I was uh, you know, in California and I was invited up to uh, Ginger Rogers' old house. Well, it wasn't an old house, a house that she had. And above the house was her uh, studio, her dance studio. And okay, maybe Ginger Rogers is not known by many young people these days, but uh, to a lot of people, Ginger Rogers was, you know, Fred Astaire. They, they were sort of the top people in Hollywood in those days. And you go in and you see the things in, in, in these places. And those experiences, you come back and say, oh, by the way, I was in, oh, really? You know, it's like, you, those things you should share. Mm. And whilst we're talking about family, it, it would be nice. Um, I, know, I know with Julie, we, we do that now. We've been to some quite interesting places. Uh, Rebunk took over Disneyland at one point. Was it Disneyland? Yeah. Yeah. They just, just for Rebunk. They, they closed it and we had the whole evening as Rebunk in wow. Disneyland. And oh, so, wow. yeah, you can imagine that this was, and everything was free, of course. You didn't have to pay for anything. You just went anywhere you want. So a whole evening. I mean, those sort of experiences are fantastic. You know, I, I think you, you would become very, very spoiled if you did that all the time. Uh, and so it's good to step back. But Reebok did offer that opportunity. <clears throat> and uh, when you say what well, sacrifices, yes, there, there must be sacrifices. But uh, I, I think it all depends on whether the family want to come with you or not won't be part of it because I think it has to be a family, something family do. I, I had a conversation, some conversations with somebody in California who just set up their own, well, they've, they've been that for five years, their own footwork company. Uh, and he was saying, well, it's me and my wife who did And I said, well, that's brilliant. If you and your wife, if you're working together, that's great. You know, it's, it's, it's the best way because between you, you will have to do things. To make it happen, and, and it's good <clears throat> that the two of you do it. So that way, your family can share. Um, I mean, the story thing for me was uh, when we described we got just on the cusp of getting into America. We were just there with the right shoe, the right product, and my brother, I was taken ill, and he died, and he wasn't able to share that, those moments when we we got in into that to market and. You know the, the things how it, how it grew, and and the wonderful times. And you know, we, well, we met royalty. Then we went to the the guards invitation to the dance or whatever they the the annual dinner. There were so many things that uh, you become part of, uh, and they're fantastic memories. And I hope most of these are, are, are in the book. I think that most of them are in the book now. Uh, but there are lots and lots of anecdotes that don't get into the book because, you know, you're advised, well, anecdotes are just, I'll tell you, you know, let's tell the story. Mm. So the story is in the book, but I have lots of anecdotes of things that happened. That, you know, they're just times that you enjoy, times that uh, you, know, you meet different and various people. Um, it was John Forsyth, you know who John Forsyth is? He, he was in the 
Yeah, you you mentioned him um, towards towards the end of the book, and, I, and I'm yet to look him up, uh, but he he sounds uh, he sounds familiar to me, um, but not no recollection. I've, I've been meaning to check him out, but he seemed like a actual person at the time. He was in films, right, or a presenter. Well, well he was in Dynasty. Dynasty was the um, big. Uh, was it, where was Dynasty from? California was was a big uh, well, weekly series from America. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. It was it's all about California and about the wealth and whatever. It's fantastic. John Collins was in it. Uh, there was a, a lot of this stuff. And, and it was, he was a real trooper for Reebok. He, he would come to everything that we did. But uh, I think I mentioned in, my, in the book that only the second occasion that I'd actually met him and he came up and said, Hi, Joe, how are you? <laughs> and and, and I, I was amazed. John, I said, I don't know you because you know, you're on every television in, in the world. They're like, how do you know me? He said, Joel, that's my job. <laughs> and it, it's incredible that, uh, uh, but he, 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 was, uh, he was a real friend. Uh, lots of my friends, uh, Roger Moore, you know, I spent quite a lot of time with Roger Moore. And he, he was a scream, he really was. He, he was a really funny man, good sense of humor, great sense of humor. And, uh, you know, he would give speeches at dinners that we went to it. So these are the sort of anecdotes that you know you don't uh, you can't put them in, into a book. They don't they don't all fit in. They're just little things that you talk about. And uh, you know visiting uh, Prince Rainier in the palace in in Monaco. You, know, you wouldn't expect to do that in your life, would you? <laughs> but you know this happened, and lots of these things happened. Uh, so it, it was a magnificent time and. A wonderful experience, and I, and I hope most of this comes across in the book. Uh, you know, we we came from Jack and myself, just starting off, two people trying to make shoes, uh, you know, sort of re- reliving our grandfather's sort of uh, uh, his history and, uh, and and what we can remember. He must have done some wonderful things, but in those days it was mere performance. Everything they did for performance, whereas now the performance and sports shoes now, I mean, it just is influencing fashion and street fashion. It, it's the all the way now. It's, it really does now influence everything that's on the street. Yeah, I think there's 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 a real coming together of different cultures. You have sport, uh, you have entertainment, you have you know music culture, fashion, is, and sits right at the heart of it. What we wear is is self-expression, and I feel like that's been an evolution that you've you know you you've played an integral part in in terms of Reebok, especially in the UK. I I grew up wearing mostly Reebok trainers all the time, um, and I have very fond memories. Uh, of of that brand and looking being excited to go and get it and every, everyone in the school wearing the, the Reebok workout so it was like you know um yeah it's it's just it's so so powerful um how it's all come together and I think you've there's appreciate um we're coming up to an hour there's peer path is all about making connections um and just being aware of the power of people in our lives on as we as we get onto our path. And I know you speak very fondly of some very key and important people that helped you um, to get to where you are. Um, so without the help of this person or these people, um, you might not be where you are today. So who who were they and why? And, and perhaps maybe, you know, three, because I'm pr- probably sure there's, there's, there's many uh, having mentioned in the book, but if there was three. Well, I, I think that... Um... 
Paul Fireman was very was very influential in America. That I, that was fantastic that uh, he he was able to do what he was doing because there were two big problems that faced Paul, well, faced us as a company. One is that uh, <clears throat> once we started to take off, how did we get the the uh, production to be able to sell that sort of quantity? You, you know, you can't just uh, turn around and a factory can probably put an extra shift on, maybe work an extra day, but they can't get that sort of from 300 million to 900 million in sales. You've got to feed that production. And so he was able to do that. But I, to, uh, you, you've got to think, how, how do you fund all this? And funding was the first problem. And that came about with uh, Stephen Rubin. Stephen Rubin, when we were going to the Far East, Stephen Rubin, he, he, he had a company called, he still has a company called ASCO, and uh, ASCO, uh, they were sorting from the Far East. That's what their job was, sorting. And they were sourcing them for large companies, companies, uh, um, maybe clerks or whatever. He would do sourcing for lots of people. And uh, Paul Fireman, Paul Fireman managed, through a friend, managed to get acquainted with, uh, with Stephen Room. And Stephen Room, mind you, is, is British, he's London. Um, and Paul is in Boston, but they did have people who knew each other and uh, got together and Stephen Rubin, for a piece of the company, of course, he he didn't, uh, he, he gave Paul Fireman a credit line. So that, okay, he didn't pay a lot of money for anything, didn't put a lot of money into the company. But if you consider the credit line, uh, which you need, if you want to buy from the Far East, the only problem with buying from the Far East is you've got to pay for it straight away. You know, barter, when we went to Barter, they gave Paul Fireman a credit line. So he he had three months, he, he never paid for them in the end, but that's another story. <laughs> Again, <laughs> yeah, part of the dilemma. Uh, you go to the Far East, you have to put your money down. You have to put a letter of credit. The letter of credit means you've got the money or your bank is willing to pay for it. So once you start doing that, and then you get volume selling. So to get the shoes from Korea to America, out to the retails, and wait for the retailers pay because a retailer can, you know, 30 days would be good, but sometimes sometimes it take three months to pay. You know, so that can extend you, and it takes you from placing your order to getting that order across the sea into your warehouse. You're talking almost six months line of credit line, and six months when if you're doing 900 million, it means somewhere around here there's 450 million of money credit somewhere. In, in in the tube. And that's something you've got to overcome. Fortunately, um, Stephen Rubin was able to get his own credit in the Far East because he was out there and he had a company out there. So it, it all came together. Without that, again, we would have never been able to do the, the volumes. Mm. So, and then, of course, there's Arjo Martinez, who, who saw this opportunity with, with aerobics. And you go through life. And earlier on, earlier on, I had a guy called John Willie Johnson who uh, just let me use use machines. You know, well, if you want a machine, just take it. He wouldn't let me buy it. He wouldn't let me rent it. He just said, "Give it me back when you're finished." <laughs> and with a company in its very fledging sort of times, very young ways and not much money at all, to, to those sort of people who can come along and help. And it's, it is incredible. So you, you, you need to make good friends and you, you, you need to uh, uh, sort of work with, with people 
and acknowledge the fact that I'm lucky to have been part of what happened. I'm not total of what happened. That takes more than one person. It takes a lot of people. And like I say, I left when at three, three and a half, three point eight billion. At that point, there's a lot of people. Yeah, you, you'll be. It's it's more like a grocery company because people are not buying shoes; they're buying boxes of shoes. They're all boxes. How many boxes do you want and <clears throat> to get those volumes moving through? It takes a lot of people. A mm. lot of people. I just happen to be at the beginning and at the right points and help it through some of those moments that you need to get through in order to develop and become something that, uh, well, we became global. And yeah, a company that I'm very proud of. And now on those those people, how did you decide or what were the traits that you looked for when you were nurturing those relationships? And, and you know, what, because I remember you, you talk about having a gut feel with Paul but, um, but how, yeah, how, what do you look for when you're speaking to these people? Or is it trial and error? Because I know you, obviously, that you had um, quite a few challenges. Well, you, you have quite a few challenges, yeah. And uh, I, I think it's more than just trial and error. I think what has to happen is, first of all, you, you have to be able to get a relationship with people. You have to be able to talk. You, you, know, you have to share some things. But then other things have to work together. So, so that it happens, like the running market was coming, the aerobics market, all these things come together to allow you as people to work with each other. And if you, if you have, um, if you're both familiar with what the, like I said, what the goal is, what you're trying to get, if you're both going in the same direction, no good if you're having people pulling in different directions. You've all got to work together for it to happen. And, and this is a natural thing. And it's, it's much easier when a company is growing and a company is exciting. It's much easier for people to work together. Mm. It's only when you get into problems and then other people have ideas on how you should change this. So that's where your tensions come in. That's what, when it becomes difficult. For me, Reebok had a few difficult moments. Uh, and fortunately, when we got to America, the big difficult moment of financing that and then finding the, the volumes, uh, Steve Leggett, who I don't think he's in the book, but uh, he didn't ring a bell. No, now, Steve Leggett was the first person that, uh, that was sent out from America to uh, to spend his time in Korea. He volunteered, really. He was a he was a production. Man. No, he is he is in he's in the book. Yeah, I do remember. Uh, wasn't he nearly fired by Paul? That's right. Yeah. He was nearly fired by Paul because the out in Korea, though, the factories they required. I think it was something like 250 pers to actually run a line, what production line completely for you all the time. And he put an order in so they could get a line making Reebok. But it, it, it was then producing more more shoes than, uh, than we would take in America. Just after, and Paul couldn't. And Paul was at the point uh, saying, like, you know, you're fired. This is it. You know, we, you know, I can't afford all this. When, of course, the business started to expand. So what happened? He, he was absolutely right. Yeah, he was wrong, but it worked right. <laughs> he, he was wrong to do what he did, but it worked out right. Because, again, if he entered on that, Paul wouldn't have been able to react to the demand quickly. Right. And you know, I remember talking with Paul, and Paul, Paul said, Joey said, you know, we, we're really having problems. And they were having problems keeping up with demand. You know, we were putting demands in from uh, all over the world, 
and Paul was trying to feed the American market. And quite often they would pinch some supplies that should have gone to other countries, to Australia, to Germany, to whatever. They would take that and use it in the American market. And, and Paul said to me, Joey said, uh, you know, I know how to stop this. He said, but if I do, I had just no idea how we started again. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it is just a matter that he was being pulled on by, by demand. And it was a question of uh, how can we keep that demand slightly hungry, but not starved. You can't starve it. If you starve the market, people go elsewhere. Mm. Nike come in, Adidas come in, others, and put some supply in there. But they all stood back. <laughs> which was incredible. They just thought it was going to be a, uh, a three-month, six-month, two-year craze. It saw it, and it lasted for a lot longer than that. <laughs> and it, it took Reebok uh, to the number one sports brand globally. We overtook Adidas, we overtook Nike, and became the number one sports brand. It did bring with it its own problems, because all of a sudden you were, a, I say, a one-category sports company. You know, most sports companies cover a lot. They cover soccer, baseball, basketball, running, tennis, you name it. And, you know, Reebok did start to spread that way. We, we did get into tennis, very nice into tennis. In fact, it was quite interesting that uh, in tennis, Paul, well, his, uh, his, his agency, his advertising agency came up with, uh, with a good one on that one. And that, and that was very similar to what grandfather had done many years ago. Um, and that was, if you don't believe our tennis shoes are the best tennis shoes you've ever worn, uh, we'll give you a new pair and, and a box of, um, of, of tennis balls. And this was headed up, Reebok puts the balls on the line. <laughs> yeah, well, brilliant marketing again. Brilliant. Yeah, my grandfather had done this uh, many years ago by saying, if you don't believe that uh, Foster's are the best running shoes you've ever worn, we'll give you £100. And £100 back in the early uh, sort of 1900s was a lot of money, probably worth 10000 today, something like that. You know, incredible amount of money. But uh, So that was a sort of uh, advertising, sort of promoting. These are the sort of things that uh, help build your company. But you, know, you have to have an awful lot of luck and a little bit of that magic dust that uh, you know, makes things happen. And this is timing. It's luck, timing, whatever it is, and timing to a great extent is luck. And it also sounds you had a lot of faith as well. And I know you talk about a bit of blind faith and, and you know, have, having people do the wrong thing but turning out right. Uh, but having faith in people, it seems like you, you, it was, uh, you know, you had, you had a lot of in certain people, but it was well placed, it seems. Um, Brilliant. I feel. I mean, I could talk all day. I'd. I'd. I'd love. I'd love to go into more. But um, appreciate. We've. We've been talking for an hour, and I. I don't want to keep you, Joe. So, if there was, um, you know, having one thing I really find interesting about your story as well is you have you 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 believe in yourself fully as a winner. And if you were to say, you know, to some people that, especially right now, in terms of self belief and self confidence and people's visions of themselves and where they're going. Um, if you were to, you know, to give someone your guidance or, you know, thoughts on what, on how they can stay the path or how they even find their path, what, what would you say to them? Well, it's, uh, 
it's difficult because most of the time in my life I consider that uh, you make good decisions only after the event. It's like you can't know you're making a good decision. You make a decision against this or whatever it is. Uh, to try and advise people, it's, uh, it's the only thing I can say to people is if you've got if you've got an idea and you believe in it and be passionate, be passionate. Don't don't be part time. You've got to be full time on it. It, you might not win, but you would kill yourself if you don't try. You, you just regret it for the rest of your life if you don't try doing what you do. So, you know, have faith in yourself. You will win. The, the, you know, there's lots of places out there now. Everything's new now, but it's technology. You know, you've got to think, where is this going? <clears throat> Everything now is going down technology. You know, we, we have COVID. But we, we're able to speak like this. And, you know, I, I've, I've had similar uh, uh, conversations with Australia, with uh, Singapore. You know, and everybody now, I think I've got one later on with India. You know, it's, this, this, is, this is how it goes. You just have faith in yourself. And, you know, I, I can't guarantee anybody will get as much luck as I had. <laughs> <laughs> Or, 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 or share so many experiences and enjoy so many of them. Um, we're in a fairly romantic business. The sports footwear business, sports business is a fairly romantic business. And you know, it, in life, you don't get that many opportunities to be in something that, like, that we're in and, and to mix with the A-class and do whatever. It, it's been fantastic. But all I can say is belief. You must have belief. And it's good also if you've got a partner with you. I had Jeff in those early days, and that, that got us over the hump. He was just the production man. He would be doing the production. Okay, I could run around all, all I want, but if I didn't have production, if I didn't have somebody doing something, uh, making the product and believing in what we were doing. So it's good to have somebody at your back, somebody who uh, you can turn to and say, wow. And luckily, Jeff and myself, brothers, we got on. We didn't live each other's lives. We weren't with each other all the time. But we we got on very well, which is like, you look at my father and uncle, they didn't. Like Jeff and I had to pull them apart on more than one occasion when, when they were fighting. That doesn't work for a company. So you know, it's it makes sure you work with the right people. And you soon know whether they're the right people. And if they're not, the option is, look, you know, it's, that's not working. Let's move over. Let's do something different. And I, I've had that experience. And you know, when when Reebok ran into early troubles because our distributor suddenly went out of business, I had to talk to the workers, the staff that we had, you know, twenty odd people working for us, and say, look, we, we're going to have to cut down to about five because there's no production at the moment. And every one of them said, well. Look, you know, I'm willing to work for nothing or, you know, when when you get back on your feet, you know, can, can I come back and work? They they were so enthusiastic, you know, you treat them, they were part of the business. And so, and they did. I mean, as we grew, everybody came back to work when we needed, they, they came back in. So it, it is, you've got to build that uh, association. So it, it's, you know, make friends, you know, also have enthusiasm. Be enthusiastic about what you do. You know, it's, it's no good talking about the, the worst things. You know, you know, problems you'll get over. And that, 
they're there to challenge your endurance. Uh, but really, if you are an optimist and if you if you look forward, always looking forward, that's what you know. You've got to you've got to have that. That's an important part, I think, of being an entrepreneur. And and what a what a place to finish it. Um, always remain optimistic, enthusiastic, and and passionate about what you do, and it will take you forward to be able to achieve massive things like Joe, um, who's been able to do incredible things from very humble beginnings. Uh, and what I love though is that you you managed just to close. You've you, over the course of your career, you've only moved, uh, or the, the company only moved about one point two miles down the road. You start from Dean Street to uh, Institute Street, where you built the uh, oh, the big offices. Yeah. <laughs> I was just looking on the map. I was like, over over 29 years, and you've just moved a mile down the road. <laughs> but but the change is staggering. From Foster's, that's right. Well, we we all we always thought we believed uh, in Bolton. Bolton was our hometown, and um, we actually took Hollywood to Bolton on, on a couple of occasions. Uh, we had Charlton Heston there and a uh, few people from Hollywood. So, yeah, it, it was really good. And we, we got the front page on that occasion. <laughs> Normally, when we did something business-wise, which was good, we just about made it to the middle pages. <laughs> but uh, on, on that occasion, we made the front page. <laughs> yeah, amazing. I know, an amazing story. And I'm very grateful to, to have um, spoken with you and connected with you today, Joe. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will get so much value out of this. Um, it's unreal. Would definitely recommend you go and buy the book. But if you if you wanted to share with listeners on where they can find it and how they can get in touch with you, perhaps they can uh, buy the book through Amazon or I think Waterstones. Most of the booksellers uh, now have the book in. And uh, the only way you can ever get uh, a signed copy, of course, with COVID and whatever, is to use our website. You can buy it through the website, uh, and and that way you can get a de- dedicated signed copy. But uh, you know. Most people can get all through uh, Amazon or Waterstones. Fantastic. Uh, I have I have my own signed copy, so very grateful for that. Um, and, and just again, yeah, thank you so much for your time, Joe. Um, really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for listening. It's a pleasure, Jess. Thank you. Just to share with you, because I think you might like this. The reason I'm, The reason this exists at the minute is because you accepted um, my invitation to to speak. So I had, I set it up. I was expecting you to say no. Um, so when you said, yeah, sure, I'll come on, I was like, oh, I, I better do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope it works for you very well. I really do. Yes. <laughs>